Welcome to Neighborhood Church. To learn more about who we are as a community or to financially support Neighborhood, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. All right. All right, friends, we are back at it. Before, balcony people, uh, before we get to the best message of your life, uh, I forgot, you get one more bonus announcement, and I got good news and bad news, and they're both the same. And I said last week that we're going to have a barbecue on June 4th or 3rd. I lied. I was corrected quickly after that there is no barbecue. The barbecue is on June 22nd, I believe. So, yeah, you're lucky. That's your, well, we're all happy for you, Kayla. That's wonderful. It's your birthday. So, um, that's why we're having it. It was supposed to be a surprise. Um, but on June 3rd, we are celebrating graduates. So if you are a graduate to June 4th, okay. I'm just going to keep looking at Ross because he just wants to keep correcting me. I like that. I need people like that, all right? Um, but we're going to be celebrating graduates that day. It's also our pride service uh, where Rick, Rebecca Rick, our associate pastor, is going to be giving a message as we kick off Pride Month. But if you know a graduate of... Um, of high school or college or a program, um, just email us at info at neighborhoodchurchmn.org, and uh, we already got one, and we, <laughs> and we have a couple more, and we'd like to be able to ce- celebrate you. So, for the best message of your life, if you've not met me um, or you've not been around long, I talk often of how um, I am a very, I shouldn't say very, I'm a um, I'm a very anxious person. I deal with uh, a level of anxiety, which before, like five Christmas ago, I thought everybody had a wheel in their head that never stopped, right? And the way that I dealt with it is I would work like 60 hours a week, and I was celebrated for that, right? That was like, yeah, work till you're dead is something that we would say, and then we would laugh. <laughs> um, and that was just me um, coping with my anxiety, right? And it worked. If you just never stop working and your anxiety gives you energy, right? Well, that's what I thought. Um, The end result is not great, but you get to get a lot of work done. And so one of the things with my anxiety, and it's not like like I went to this party where I didn't know anybody, Nikki, my partner and I, and um, on the way there, I all of a sudden felt my anxiety begin to rise. And it's not like if you're an anxious person, it's not like you wake up one day and say, you know, it would be really great. At the party, if I could be the guy that just stares out the window for like five minutes so I can catch my breath and try not losing 30 pounds of sweating, right? Like, you don't decide it. It just happens, right? If you're an anxious person, you understand this. And um, at, when I get anxious, especially in a social um, space, I get to this idea that my face is like a cinnamon, uh, like those little cinnamon red hots, you know what I'm talking about? My face is like that beating red, like a big tomato, and my anxiety says, everyone sees it. Everyone sees it, but everyone's too polite to say anything. And anyone else like this? Am I the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get it? So you're just like, everyone knows it, but everyone's just lying and saying, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Like, you're just pretending to like me because my face is so beating red that it's distracting. And what everyone wants to do is just take a bowl of ice water and shove it in your face, all right? That's, that's what I think everyone wants to do. And it doesn't help, right? It doesn't help when I'm, when I'm anxious because I... Um, don't talk, I get really weird, I say things that I would never say to people I just met, you know, trying to be funny, and it's not funny at all. Um, And so one trick that I've learned as I'm walking, again, I'm still, you know, transforming, I'm still evolving in it, uh, but what helps me is before I walk into a new space, 
um, is for me to reimagine who I am. Because part of my anxiety is I let, um, not even other people, I, I take other labels that I give myself and I make them true, right? Like you are um, annoying, you are, uh, everyone's just tolerating you. Like a whole series of labels that no one's given me. No one's ever walked up to me and said, wow, I'm here just because I'm tolerating you, Chris. And so have a great time, bye, right? I make that up for myself. I make that true. And so if I can put down those labels and I can like, have this blank can- canvas where I can draw a picture of who I really am and who I want to be. And being able to reimagine is a coping skill that has been incredibly, incredibly powerful for me. But it's also been um, transformational in the way I think about God, right? A lot of us, what we believe about God, like if, if we sat down and said, you know, why do you think God is this way? Uh, you, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, I, I picked it up when I read uh, this book on, on this. It's mainly, you, like, um, oh, man, this phrase we used to use, um, things are more um, caught than taught, right? And especially when it comes to faith. There's things that were handed to you um, at formative years of your life where you're just like, oh, yeah, of course this is what God thinks. Of course this is how we read the Bible. Of course this is sacred. Of course this is true. Um, and then it, you get to a point in your life where you just can't hold it any longer, right? And what a lot of people do, we call this deconstruction. I, I know that Pastor Carolyn did a message on this uh, a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, deconstructing is just uh, taking this thing that was built or erected, and you begin just to take it apart. And you evaluate and say, I don't know if I can hold this anymore. And you set it down. And maybe you pick something else up. Being able to reimagine faith for me has kept me in this good and beautiful faith. Right? Like I am uh, proudly a Christian. I am in this Christian stream. But there was for a while. Like, well, I won't, I won't, I'm not going to say that. There was a while, all right, where it felt hard. Not because of God, but because of a lot of other Christians. Right? Made me feel like if this is what loving God is, if this is what it means to be a pastor, because people have an expectation of me. I'm a middle-aged, incredibly good-looking white man, right? And so a lot of people assume, and when they hear I'm a pastor, they have these assumptions about me. And I have to help them reimagine what a pastor might be. Because I'm no longer in an evangelical stream, right? I'm no long, I don't identify as evangelical. We feel very evangelical, but we don't identify as evangelical. And that's not, evangelicalism isn't horrible in and of itself. It just doesn't work, doesn't work for me anymore. So being able to reimagine what it looks like to love God has been so incredibly good. And lucky for us, we have in this Bible filled of stories of people reimagining what it looks like to have this good and beautiful God. In the Bible itself, it tells this story of this ever-evolving, like, not just God, but people rediscovering what God is and what it looks like to connect and worship and move with this God. Happens over and over and over. The very first person to name God, right? Because, uh, I mean, I didn't plan on saying this, but when we say God, it's just a name we use to name something we can't ever name, right? God is infinitely knowable, which means God is infinitely unknowable. So we use this big, broad word of saying, well, whatever that is, <laughs> right, we're going to call God. But throughout the Bible, people gave names to God. Hagar was the first person to give God a name. And it's the name, um, the, the translation is, the God who sees me. Why? Because there was a God who chased after Hagar, who was an enslaved, uh, an enslaved teenager that was forced to have a baby, right, with Abram. And she, of course, like all of us, <laughs> would be like, 
run away. And as she's running away in this garden, God speaks with her, engages her, right? And she says, you're the God who sees me. An enslaved young woman is the first person to name God. She was able to reimagine maybe what this God might be. Moses is walking by uh, this um, pile, this bush, how many times before he noticed it was on fire, right? I imagine he had his head down, he walked by dozens of times before he turned around and he saw it, and what does God say? This is holy ground, right? And the name is I Am. Reimagining God is all throughout, not just the Bible, but the story of Christianity. And um, I wanted to give this message last week because um, being in this new space is going to require some reimagining. And so what we're going to do, and I'm going to hit on why that might be um, at the end, that's called making you wait. You're welcome. So if you ever want a Bible, if you ever want to make sure that what I'm reading is actually the Bible, not making up, we do have Bibles uh, in the back. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like one, we celebrate stealing not just mugs, but Bibles as well. So, if you want. And we're reading out of uh, Acts chapter 8. Oh, I got to say this before. Um, this is for um, Bible nerds. If there's anyone who's a Bible nerd, uh, here it is. There is so many different ways of interpreting the Bible, right? For a long time in evangelicalism, um, I was told we have to get to the clear biblical truth, right? And funny, whoever had the most power got to define what that truth was, right? But there is so many different ways of reading and interpreting the Bible because each one of us has our own bias, our education, our trauma, um, uh, our family systems, right? Our economics, uh, everything is influencing. And I was taught in my undergrad, um, like, you have to take yourself out of the Bible, right? You got to, like, you have to objectively be able to, to, to read the Bible, which is impossible. Even the people who wrote this, right, they had their own bias. And the people who translated it, they had their own bias. So when we read it, we're going to have our own bias. And for a while there, I felt bad. I felt shame, right? People said, well, you just rip out the parts of the Bible you don't like. I'm like, you can. I don't care. <laughs> if, that, if that helps you, go for it, man. But I'm not, like, I'm not making it up. I'm going to have an interpretation as all of us should. That's not a bad thing, right? The purpose of the Bible is not um, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? Does anyone remember that song? Anyone? No? Okay. It's a, anyways, a band called Burlip the Cashmere. I have no idea why I remember that. Thank you, Dietrich. So um, this is not a roadmap to the perfect life, right? It is a complicated, nuanced story with violence, sexism, right? Uh, beautiful things, liberation, enslavement, all right? Even in the New Testament, Paul advocates for um, being kind to slaves. And slaves, enslaved people should be kind to the masters because it represents a beautiful God, which we would never agree to now, right? The point of the Bible is to inspire us to continue to reimagine. Why? Because it's what they do. So um, we're going to be reading Acts. And um, we're going to read in this passage something that should make you go like, uh, say again, right? Like, did, did he just say that? When you read the Bible, when you read any, any, uh, what is it, any books, right, anything you're reading, and something grabs your attention, something makes you feel, like, uncomfortable, or something makes you feel really good, or something, like, kind of brings a lot of curiosity, in any other form of literature, we've taught to, like, oh, you should, like, check out why that is. When it comes to the Bible, I was taught you don't ever question it, Right? It's like in the story of Acts, um, oh, I don't remember, the people who lied about giving money and then they die. Do you remember that part? 
like as a kid, I'm like, I better never lie about money, <laughs> right? But why is it that we lie? We all lie about money to some degree, right? Why aren't we all dropping dead, right? Maybe they were trying to tell the bigger story, right? And uh, a, one way of interpreting Acts, and once you um, hear this, you can't unhear it. So buckle up, right? Um, if you read Acts, uh, one way of thinking about it is that it's historical. And I do believe that it's historical. But I believe it's historical fiction. That the things that Luke, who wrote Acts, um, is trying to um, lead us to is trying to tell a bigger story by embellishing on some elements, which isn't bad, right? Because when I tell my kids the story about playing basketball at Carleton High School, the greatest high school in the history of the world, right? And the greatest basketball program. Um, uh, where am I going with this? Oh, yeah. So I tell my kids, right? Um, I, I, don't, I, what I, I, I don't tell them that I averaged more fouls than points, right? I just tell them I was really good. And they're like, yeah, dad was really good. I'm like, yes, I averaged more fouls than points. That is actual fact, right? But I am embellishing on it because I want to tell a bigger story to my kids, right? And this is very common in this genre of writing. This was uh, writing history is very, very a modern thing in the way we do it, where we have fact-checking and we have Wikipedia and we have um, experts who can go back and check the, the, the validity of what we're writing. Back then, it, that wasn't the highest concern of is every single thing exactly right. The biggest concern is what, where are we trying to lead you? And Luke is trying to lead us to a very bigger idea of this good and beautiful God. So, with that being said, here's chapter 8, verse 28. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south of the road, the, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of Ethiopians. This means... This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? Well, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In the humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told them the good news of Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look. <laughs> look, awkward pause, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So, um, th th there's so much happening in this small little passage. And... Um, it's brilliant because what Luke, Luke is intentional of like what details is he sharing, right? He says what time it is. It's at noon, so it's the highest point of the sun. They're in the desert, right, on this desert road. So they're in the middle of nowhere. And the, the, the Ethiopian, which in the New Testament, the, the gospel writers um, believe that Ethiopia was like the end of the world. 
right? That was like the furthest you can imagine was Ethiopia. And whatever's beyond that, they didn't know. And so they're trying to say, this person from the end of the world is coming to the center, coming to Jerusalem, because um, this Ethiopian wanted to learn about this God of Abraham, right? All these other gods in Ethiopia, there's something about this God that piqued his interest. There's just one problem that they kind of leave out here. As a eunuch, and if you don't know what a eunuch is, um, because there's kids here, it is a, a, a way that uh, you change the male anatomy, right, to a very specific degree. And this was very common um, if you're working for um, a queen of someone of prominence um, as a way to keep things safe, right? <laughs> and so, um, and so he is um, a, a eunuch, and that would keep him from being able to worship at the temple. There's Levitical laws that are very clear about who gets to be in and who is out, right? Who is who's able to come and participate to a further degree than other people. And because of what he chose, I imagine the eunuch, you know, chose to work with the queen and had this done to him or did to himself. He probably knew already kept him on the outside, but he still wanted to show up, right? And he, he's there, and he is a very wealthy person. Uh, because he has his own scroll and has his own chariot. To have your own scroll was a, like, we have, like, hundreds of Bibles, like, laying around, right? Um, to have your own scroll was a sign of prominence and wealth. And he doesn't stop. He didn't have access to the temple, but it does not keep him from uh, wanting to reimagine what this God might be, right? Because he's still reading it and he's still processing it. So he's moving um, from this, the, the temple, the place of power, right, and moving back to the end of the world. And Philip hears this message from God, right, and feels inspired that he's supposed to walk down this road. And you can imagine Philip's like, well, why am I just walking down this desert road? Well, then he sees the chariot. And God says, go talk to him. He talks to him, and, right, and, and, it, and it happens. They have this conversation of reimagining for this eunuch of what this God and who this Jesus might lead him to be to the point that he demands, right? The Ethiopian demands, not Philip, demands, why can't I be baptized? And Philip says, great idea, my man, let's go, right? And this is the first time, this is the first time someone outside of the Jewish faith that is baptized, right, in the book of Acts. It is a trans black Ethiopian man is the first person to be baptized, right? Luke puts that in there on purpose, Right? And you can imagine as they're sitting there talking that this eunuch could look up to the north and see like where he came from and saying, Well, I, I, I can see if I cross this border, right? If I cross this boundary, I can have access to some of these things, but not all of them. Why? Because of my lived experience says I'm less than, says I'm excluded. I'm not belong I don't belong. But over here, back towards Ethiopia, I have access to these things, and they're really positive, but there's still this story, this compelling story of the gospel of Jesus that I have not been able to experience over here. They're in this in-between space, right? They're in this in-between space of these boundaries, of these identities, of these uh, ways of belonging, and they're in this desert, in the wildness, in the middle, and it's beautiful because it's in those in-between spaces where we can reimagine what it looks like to be sacred, what it looks like to be holy, what it looks like to belong. Sometimes when you're in that system, like when you're, uh, when you're growing up and you're in your family system and you're like, everyone does Taco Tuesday. Every family has Taco Tuesday on a Wednesday and a Thursday, right? And it's not until you get to college and like my friend, um, oh, I probably shouldn't say it. I have a friend um, 
who names food very funny names, and she really means it. And so the first time we hung out, and um, she goes, do you guys want some uh, sprinkle cheese? And we like kind of like stopped, looked around, like, are we talking to kids? She says, no, no, do you want some sprinkle cheese? I'm like, sprinkle cheese? What's sprinkle cheese? No, sprinkle cheese. It's Parmesan cheese, right? She goes, <laughs> so she'll say things, and we have to stop and say, like, are you being funny right now? And she's like, yeah, like, ah, ah, ah. So once you get to college or you get out of your home, you realize not everyone calls it sprinkle cheese. People, sane people call it Parmesan cheese. So um, sometimes you have to be out of that system and maybe be in a new system or maybe you're in this in-between space where you have permission and you have the opportunity to dream, which for me, like I said, saved my faith that I don't have to continue all these things that were handed to me. I don't have to carry them with me. I can reimagine what it is. It's a breath of fresh air. Here's why I bring it up for this, our church. The first time that I walked in this building, I was overwhelmed with the generosity from Westminster. And those who are here from Westminster were so incredibly grateful. Um, the, from the ceiling to the space, it just felt, um, it felt like home to me. But still, now remember, I am, I'm a clergy. I'm a professional, all right? I'm, people tried disagreeing with me, but I am a professional. And... Um, and I'm a Christian, and I love it, right? I've been doing this gig for almost 20 years. And when I walked in and I saw the cross above me, it was triggering to me, knowing that as I'm looking at all of you, there is this huge cross looming over you, all right? And um, I know for some people, I've talked to them, that it, is, um, it can be triggering walking into a, um, a place that is a church, right? This looks like a church, smells like a church, it is a church, right? If it walks like a church, you know it's a church, um, which I love, but I also understand that it can be triggering to people who have spiritual trauma. For me, um, I had to reimagine what the cross meant to me, because not from my family, <laughs> I just want to make that very clear, right? But through um, some of my, uh, from my youth group and my undergrad, um, the cross was used as a way to shame me, right? Anyone else? It's like, well, Jesus died for your sins, and you're going to go be selfish and do that? Or uh, you put Jesus on the cross. How can you, right? Even the, the, the language in some of the worship songs that we used to sing way back when is all about depravity and how bad we are and we're so desperate, right? Because the gift of the cross. And it was an absolute gift. But when it's used to shame and, and demand you move from here to over here, that is not at all what the gospel is. That's not why Jesus willingly gave his life, right? But when I had to go through those experiences, it was still an obstacle, right? And for a long time, for a long time, the entire time of us being a church, we had zero crosses in our, at the high school, right? Yeah, we had no crosses. And we had no crosses at the hub. In eight years, we finally have a couple crosses, right? And I like that. But we have to be able to reimagine, right, what it might be instead of letting whoever that was or that pastor or that system or that church that um, influenced you to, to have that opinion or that thought. It, even being in, like, a, like I said, a churchy church, I know last week we had a couple people saying, this was really hard for me because I've not been in a church since the last time this pastor said this thing to me and I never, I've never been back at church since, right? I'm well aware, as one of the pastors, I'm aware of what this, what this building can represent. But I'm also aware of what it could represent. And we have the power of doing that, right? We can reimagine 
what a church not just looks like, we can reimagine what a church is and how it functions and our purpose. I, for as long as I've been a pastor, I've, I've hated doing things just because churches are supposed to do those things, right? Like, I remember I was a youth pastor, and I said, well, we have to have an all-nighter. Why? Well, because I'm a youth pastor, and I hated all-nighters. I, one time, went into the bus and slept at 5 in the morning. My wife was nine months pregnant, and she kicked, no lie, I can't say this because she's not here. Um, <laughs> she kicked that door open, <laughs> and she goes, what are you doing? Well, I, I, can't, I can't swear. So she said, get in, get inside. And she grabs her belly, and she goes, if we're in there, you're in there. I'm like. Okay, here we go. Um, why did I tell that story? Oh, yeah, because I, we did all-nighters because I felt like we were supposed to do all-nighters. All we can reimagine what it looks like to find belonging here. And so th- that's my message, is to have a space in the in-between, right? Maybe you are in a place of certainty with your face. Maybe you're in a place of deconstruction. Maybe you're in a place of reconstruction, and you're reordering your faith. Maybe you're here because you just like the people. Maybe you're here because you like my high intellect, right? Maybe you're here because you just want to connect with another person and laugh. And all those belong, friends. Because we're never going to say everyone who comes to this church has to hold this, right? We're never going to play that game. We're going to put people over doctrine every time. And I love that. There's a place of where you and I could read um, Acts and have two different experiences with it. And that is a beautiful thing. So... Reimagining. I'm going to give a shout out to my friends who are sober. You had to reimagine a lot of what your life was worth, right? To my friends who had to walk out of relationships or marriages because it was so toxic, and for the longest time you said, well, I, you know, it's going to change, it's going to change, and it never did. You had to reimagine what your value was worth, right? To my friends who retired, you had to reimagine what your, um, your belonging meant, what your identity meant. Because it was all I did is work, and now I don't work. I work till the dead, well, I don't want to die, <laughs> right? You had, you had to reimagine. To empty nesters, you had to reimagine. To people who had to walk through trauma, you had to do a lot of reimagining. People who had to walk through a, a health or a diagnosis, you had to reimagine. For people who are walking through what it means to show up in a room, maybe as a person of color, or even as a white person, reimagine what kind of biases do I bring in? What, what does my privilege inform me to be and to do and ask of me? You have to be able to reimagine that. So cheers to all of us who had to reimagine, and here's to us continually to reimagine. So let's pray. So God, I thank you that moving in curiosity and wonder is not a threat to you. That you're the God who sees us. And the real us is going to be all over the map. And thank God, because we all are. (laughs) And that is not a threat. That is not something to be shameful of. It is something to realize and awaken to. That the real me is enough. The anxious Chris is still beautiful. And so, God, we love you. And I pray that you would use us to continue to reimagine what faith is, what belonging is, and what divine love is. And that we can move throughout our neighborhoods, we can move throughout the spaces we find ourselves in, um, in the fullness of, I don't have to all figure it out, I can just be me, because I am loved. So as we're in this in-between space, God, 
We continually ask to do good and beautiful things in us and through us. We love you. Amen. All right, friends. Well, thank you for being in this space. Uh, we're going to, st- I know, you're all like, when's mug club? I got to get the mug club. All right? Yeah, a lot of eye rolls. So um, we're going to do in here, we're going to do in about 15 minutes. And we're gonna, if you want to come up in 15 minutes, just in the front. And again, it'll last 20 minutes. Thank you.